Welcome to Advisor's Edge, a new podcast for financial intermediaries designed to keep you abreast of what's new and what's next in modern wealth management. In each episode, top experts in the field will share the latest intelligence on market trends, asset allocation, due diligence insights, and more. It's part of our SMART series, highlighting new thinking from Siegel Marco Advisors' research and trends, helping you make more informed decisions. This podcast provides information from reliable sources, but no guarantee is given for its accuracy. It is for general education purposes only and not intended as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. It does not constitute an offer to buy or sell securities or investment products. Consult your own advisors before making any decisions. Siegel and Siegel Marco Advisors are not responsible for any actions taken based on this podcast. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hi everyone, this is David Pampelardo from the Advisor Solutions Group at Siegel Marco Consulting. Thanks for joining us on our first podcast. We're very excited to get started and share information with you about who we are and what we do. So just briefly, the Advisor Solutions Group is Siegel Marco Advisors Financial Intermediary Consulting Practice. We've been doing this as a firm for a little over 20 years. Uh, I've been involved almost 11 years as the leader of the team. Uh, And just a little bit about me before you meet my colleague, Peter Sullivan. Uh, I've been in the business since 1995. I spent six years on the wealth advisory side before transitioning to the institutional consulting practice in 2001, where I worked both with financial intermediaries and institutional clients. Uh, After about six years of doing that, I transitioned to the asset management uh, industry, uh, leading the client relationship management group globally for a large asset manager before finally coming back to uh, what had been Rogers Casey is was now Siegel Marco Advisors uh, in 2012 to lead the advisor solutions group. So with that, I'll turn it over to Peter Sullivan to give you a little of his background. Uh, Thanks, Dave. Uh, I joined Rogers Casey in 2008. Uh, So I've been an investment consultant for uh, 15 years now. Um, Prior to that, I uh, tend to describe my background as uh, being a refugee of Wall Street. Uh, I was involved in uh, equity research and economic research uh, for uh, really from 1998. Um, Primary focus right now for me uh, has you know, historically been a mix of traditional institutional investment consulting uh, with a concentration in uh, endowments and foundations and nonprofits. Uh, But uh, I've also uh, had over this 15 years uh, a fair amount of experience with financial intermediaries, uh, really with a focus on family office and multifamily office. Uh, right now, uh, I do a lot of work in collaboration with Dave as part of the team and supporting our ASG clients. And I generally uh, appreciate the opportunity to engage uh, uh, people. Thanks, Peter. And, you know, yeah. I think uh, Peter <laughs> brings up something that is our next topic, which is really give all of the listeners a little bit better understanding of what we do and the types of clients that we work with uh, in the Advisor Solutions Group. So as as some of you may know, Siegel Marco Advisors is a large institutional consultant that's been in business over 50 years. Uh, within the institutional practice, we're working with uh, large pension plans, both uh, public uh, and private, 
as Peter mentioned, endowments and foundations, and, and really across the entire institutional client spectrum. Within the advisor solutions group, we're narrowly focused just to what we broadly describe as financial intermediaries. And so the way that we think about that from a client type standpoint are uh, registered investment advisors, uh, private banks, uh, as Peter mentioned, family office and multifamily office, uh, broker dealers, insurance companies, and our clients are typically in the U.S., but we also have clients uh, in Asia and in Australia as well. So when you think about the types of services that a consultant provides, typically on the institutional level, it's very similar with some very important differences with what we do on the advisor solutions side of the equation. So it's really kind of about three primary services, manager due diligence, asset allocation, and then what we broadly call market intelligence. And so briefly, as it relates to due diligence, we have a 30 plus person team doing uh, research on managers across the globe, across every asset class. And depending on our client needs, we have a solution, and in many cases, multiple solutions in those asset classes. So for instance, if a pension plan were to come to one of our institutional consultants looking for a private equity manager, we have folks that are dedicated to just be researching private equity solutions. And so we can provide a list of strategies across uh, different approaches. It, it works exactly the same way for our advisory clients. The, the difference obviously is advisor solutions group clients tend to be smaller than your typical institution, but we curate and customize the solutions that we provide uh, to our advisor solutions group. So that same private equity question can still be solved where we're taking an institutional quality manager and because of our relationship uh, at the firm level, we usually have great success in negotiating favorable terms and minimums that can make these types of great strategies accessible uh, to our advisors and they can obviously pass those on to their end clients as well. Briefly, uh, asset allocation. Um, in, in working with these different types of clients, there's essentially two very broad approaches. For some of our smaller advisory clients, we do a lot of work with model portfolios from either building them from scratch or reviewing existing models and providing some constructive feedback and monitoring on an ongoing basis. For a lot of the work that Peter does in the multifamily office and family office space, uh, those relationships are significantly larger in most cases, and it's really asset allocation done on a client by client or family by family basis. And then last but not least, I'll just briefly touch on market intelligence. And that really is a bit of a catch all phrase that covers all of the intellectual content that we produce across the firm that we can share with our clients. And that ranges from white papers to a monthly summary of what happened in the market that is just one page to a 20 page quarterly market summary to a very detailed market outlook, a forward-looking uh, view of the market, uh, and really everything in between. There's lots of content coming out. We have a blog uh, that gets shared with our clients, and really the feedback, particularly from advisors, is that we can serve as a point of leverage across all of the things we do, but really on the market intelligence side, if they're able to take what we produce and either use it themselves, share it with clients, uh, it really is a point of leverage because if, we, if we're creating it, it's something that they don't have to spend time and valuable resources 
creating as well. And there are opportunities with that information to either co-brand or private label, depending on the client's interest. And Peter, I, I want to kind of have you jump in here. One of the things that we talk about when we're describing our services to a, a financial intermediary is mm -hmm. the, the first question is usually how do we work with clients? And a, and a big part of that is the decision, which is, you know, is it going to be partially uh, an outsourced solution, a fully outsourced solution in mm -hmm. how we work with the existing staff? And wanted to turn it over to you to talk a little bit about our extension of staff rationale and how we how we talk to clients about it. Yeah, Dave, I think it's a, a really important point, and uh, I think it it distinguishes uh, the ASG team and and, and our solution uh, uh, here. You know, ultimately, we're aiming to be to embed ourselves in your organization, um, and generally, what we're doing as a point of leverage is using our resources, our talent, our uh, investments and in systems and software and databases and all sorts of intellectual property uh, to you know fill a fill a gap or fill a need uh, at uh, our financial intermediary organizations. Uh, it generally means that we get to know your business, we get to know your clients, we get to know their portfolios. Uh, we know uh, what existing investments that uh, you're using on a regular basement basis. Uh, we have a basis for uh, recommending and employing uh, strategies uh, that uh, are highly recommended by our research group uh, and complement your existing uh, kind of workflow and processes and portfolio management skills. Uh, so being embedded, being essentially part of your organization uh, is really our ultimate goal. It's it, it really leads to the best service, but uh, we also think it, it ultimately uh, leads to the best investment outcomes uh, for uh, your clients uh, and the best business uh, and uh, outcome for your uh, organization. Thanks, Peter. And I, and I think just to, to underline something Peter said, you know, it, it really, when you step back from the approach that we take with clients, it, it really boils down to flexibility. So we have examples of client relationships where, you know, I mentioned a few minutes ago that we have a 30 person research team. There are large organizations that have their own internal research team that's just as large uh, at a number of either broker dealers or private banks. And so we're able to come in and complement what they're doing if they need help in certain areas, uh, we're able to do that. And in other cases, by contrast, uh, it might be a smaller RIA or other financial organization that might have two or three people that are doing research and they're they're at that decision point where they know they need more capabilities and it really comes down to do they want to hire three mm -hmm. or four or five experienced people to build out that capability or do they want to partner with a firm like ours and plug into our 30 person research team. So you know, we're indifferent with how it proceeds. It's really about taking a flexible approach and asking clients what they need and mm -hmm. designing a suite of services around that. So yeah, thanks for that, Peter. Yeah, uh, no problem. Dave, I, I would, what would you, I would say that, you know, generally a lot of our conversations with our existing clients and potential clients really, you know, does focus around this buy versus build decision. So um, building out a office of the CIO. Um, uh, the CIO, it's the, you know him or her 
and the supporting uh, cast of um, uh, talented and in-demand people uh, is is one one approach versus uh, employing and leveraging our existing resources. Uh, quite often, um, our extension of staff could be we can be the entire. Uh, uh, investment office, the, the office of the chief investment officer in an organization. Uh, other times we're filling in maybe the role of uh, maybe one person, uh, for example, alternative uh, research. Uh, uh, we also do provide and, uh, you know, provide a sounding board and another source of, of you know, uh, recommendations around portfolio implementation. So it's, uh, it really is a, a valuable uh, uh, process and, and function this idea of extension of staff and I, I'm always very happy uh, and pleased uh, when we do have these types of relationships with clients because they tend to be long lasting uh, and they tend to result in really good investment outcomes. Yeah, I completely agree and I, I think that actually opens up another question which is you know what are some examples of when advisory type clients are looking to engage a consultant. And frankly, it's a it's a curious question because as anyone listening knows, depending on what part of the financial landscape you're part of, um, I think it's fair to say that it's a very fragmented and segmented business. Um, so knowing what everyone else is doing is of great interest from a competitive standpoint, but getting that information tends to be very difficult because there are firms of all sizes and shapes and specialities that uh, are in the marketplace. And, uh, you know, really when you when we think about it, from both talking to our clients and, and a lot of prospective clients across the country, competition is, is really an important question that comes up all the time. You know, there's something that, that we like to call healthy paranoia, which is our clients are always asking us, what are your other clients doing? And when we talk to prospective clients, it's similar. You know, what are your clients doing? What are you seeing in the marketplace? Because no one wants to be uh, outflanked by what the competition is doing. And I think that's a common thread that runs through a lot of the conversations that we have. And frankly, what we observe in the industry, which is the competition continues to, to uh, the bar gets raised almost every day. And we see that because years ago, even across our ASG businesses, it was much more segmented. We had an RIA practice and we had a family office practice and a private bank practice. And they were in some ways almost siloed because they they all had their own competitive landscape. Things were different. The services they offered were similar, but not the same. And I think those walls of those silos have come down, um, What is what we've seen. And really it's become much more competitive. And what how that has transformed the business is, is actually fascinating from where we sit, which is it's, it's sort of a, a competition and services arms race where some of the ultra high net worth RIAs have really in, in the last, I would say, five to six years started to significantly up their game as far as the services they offer, the quality and quantity of staff that they have, um, and they've become much more competitive versus some private banks and even some some multifamily offices you know we've had clients reach out to us and say we've got a big we've got a big client opportunity in a, in a few weeks and we need some help we're going up against you know this private bank and you know it might be a it might be a four or five billion dollar ria uh that 
you know, 10 years ago was, you know, a one or $2 billion RIA. So th there's been explosive growth. And I think when you, when you think about that, clients are always looking for how do we differentiate our practice? How can we be different? Is it, it used to be, we would be different by offering alternatives. And now that that's kind of table stakes for people uh, in this competitive business, but it really, it really changes uh, depending on the firm, depending on the, their areas of expertise. But when you step back and, and look at it some, from basically a 30,000 foot view, the competitive landscape is driving a lot of this. And that really shapes the conversations that we have with our clients and prospective clients. You know, and it, I think really where we go from, from here is, is perhaps what might be helpful is to, to give uh, everyone listening uh, one concrete example of how we work with clients, something that has come up more and more in the last few years. I mentioned it a moment ago, which is alternative investments. And as I mentioned, there's been, a, there's really been a huge increase in the demand for alternatives. And uh, I guess we could step back and, and, and say, well, why has there been such an explosion in demand for alternatives? And from our perspective, it really is driven by a, a couple of, of notable things. One is the generational transfer of wealth. Um, you know, probably a term that you're, you're sick of hearing uh, as it's been talked about for the last decade or so, but it is real and it does have uh, material impact. So you, what we're finding is through our clients, you know, they're having, they have many longstanding relationships and what's happening is, you know, their, their 80 year old clients are now transferring wealth to their, you know, 40, 40 or 50 year old children. And now their children want to do something very different than what the parents have done. Uh, and that, that takes a variety of different shapes. It could be they're more interested in ESG type investing, or they really want to get into alternatives because now their, their time horizon is now several decades, whereas their parents, it was a very different set of circumstances. So that's, that's one impact. Uh, also, market appreciation. We've seen client assets grow. The the size of the relationships that clients, our clients, who are the advisors, uh, are are getting exposed to and are winning, are significantly larger than they used to be. Um, and that's, I think, through market appreciation is certainly uh, one of the reasons. And as you have larger pools of assets, you have the flexibility now to, to deploy those assets in much more creative ways. So perhaps a portfolio that five or 10 years ago wasn't large enough to really consider true illiquid alternatives. Uh, now it's, it's, it's open season for really being creative in, in how you deploy that capital. And last but not least, a lot of these clients that have significant uh, client pools of assets are, it's driven from business owners. And uh, at the end of, of uh, Kind of sometimes a business cycle or really as someone's getting towards retirement, they decide they're going to sell their business, monetize what they've built, and there's a significant liquidity event. So we had a situation last year where a client called and said, we have someone selling their business. It's going to be for several hundred million dollars. They're now going to have all this in cash. They previously had a portfolio that was about 25 million. So now they have a huge influx. They, they really want to be creative in what they do next. So uh, pretty, pretty unusual situation that is becoming less and less unusual uh, as time goes on. But when you think of alternatives, it really has become in many ways a must have. 
for advisors in uh, winning and retaining significant relationships. And this is definitely a change from where we were, say, five or seven years ago. We're having an exposure to alternatives to be able to offer alternatives was a differentiator. Uh, and now it's a differentiator if you if you're not able to do that. So it really has changed completely. Uh, you know, really, if you if if we want to jump in here into to give some kind of concrete examples, I think one of the things that we that we come up against, and really it, it's driven completely by what's happening at our clients, which we I just kind of mentioned, is they will they will either inherit a client from uh, you know a, an advisor that that they've decided to the clients decided to transition away from or they've won it through a competitive process, but essentially they now have this enormous portfolio that they have to get their arms around. And what's happening much more often than in the past is it's a portfolio that has a significant amount of alternatives. And a lot of these advisors that we work with have been in the business for decades. So they know all, you know, many of the managers on the traditional side, they know them well, mm -hmm. they know them well enough to, to recognize them when they see it on the client statement, to have an understanding broadly of, of who these managers are and what their approach is to the marketplace. Alternatives is a completely different animal in that way, in that there are so many different choices. Obviously, the information about many of these managers is not nearly what it is on the traditional side. So they need help getting their arms around who these managers are. And so that's one of the top questions that we get from clients is, we've got this portfolio, they've got five private equity managers. We, we've heard of one of them, but we don't know anything mm. about the other four can you help us? And you know that's something that Peter and I spend a, a good chunk of our time on uh, periodically, where you know we're working with our research team. If if we don't know them ourselves, working with our research team to really get an understanding of have we met with them? You know what do we know about the firm? What type of information can we can we gather to help this advisor get up to speed before they have a meeting, so that they feel comfortable understanding who these managers are. And if we have a view, obviously, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, we can share that with our clients uh, to give them some context uh, and perspective. So Peter, I know that you've yeah. had a similar situation, have been very uh, instructive in, in working with a number of our clients in that way. What what can you share that, that might yeah. be uh, interesting in this topic? You know, what I, what I find here is that advisors you know, find themselves in a position where they inherit a private equity portfolio um, that, you know, quite often has some of the very large names um, in the private equity world uh, that, you know, tended to be, you know, derived from uh, some of the uh, bigger uh, wirehouses uh, and their appetite for selling deals to their clients. Um, a lot of these investments tend to be orphaned. Um, the client doesn't know much about them. Uh, the information uh, that's available to those that aren't really active in illiquid alternative asset classes and don't haven't made the investments in, in the systems and databases, there is not a lot of information to really gleam um, into individual uh, funds, uh, but also how they work together. Um, and so you're, you're when you inherit this portfolio that you don't know much about, you know ultimately uh, there's this decision: do we continue 
um, the client's investment in private equity? Um, uh, and if the answer is yes, um, how do we cover the uh, private equity asset class opportunity set? Um, and that really is a is really a process of finding complementary managers um, that uh, fit the specific needs of that portfolio and that client. Um, so uh, quite often, uh, the best way to manage that transition is to add uh, strategies to the portfolio um, and to continue that that program with that client. Um, otherwise, it's seen as a kind of a reduction in the quality of service and the diversification in the portfolio. Uh, and so good ideas using you know a, a deal flow uh, that's curated um, you know for our financial intermediary clients and leveraging our experience with, with advisors and their clients' challenges with these illiquid alternative asset classes is, is vital uh, and very important. Um, the other aspect, Dave, that I think uh, is really important is um, linking the illiquid alternative strategies themselves um, to the platform uh, that the the advisor has, the RIA has. That and what I mean by platform is a is a curated set of uh, investment managers and funds that are used, uh, you know, the same care and diligence um, for, you know, uh, matching those funds and, and, and investment managers with the needs of not only your clients, but the organization that you work for, uh, in the IRA, RIA itself, uh, is very vital. And so when you're looking at alternative um, asset classes, you know, curating and finding the specific number of, of strategies uh, that fit the unique um, circumstances of your client base, where, wherever the center of gravity uh, of your organization is in terms of client size, uh, targeted private equity or targeted uh, illiquid alternatives, um, the right uh, time horizon, uh, the right um, open end versus closed end versus interval. Um, you know, those types of considerations really need to reflect a customized view of what your business needs uh, and demands. Uh, and that's, you know, usually we're, we're adding a, a ton of value. Peter, those are those are excellent points. I'm glad you brought them up. And it, it actually reminds me of, of a, a similar topic. But if you take a step back, you know, I mentioned that a lot of advisors are very comfortable on the traditional side, they know a lot of the managers, mm -hmm. less so on the alternative side. And I think one thing that we observe is that, you know, I mentioned that the first call is always, who are these managers that we've inherited? Uh, how do we get up to speed uh, on these? And that's a, that's a legitimate question. I think what we've found uh, and what's worth sharing is that there's a big piece behind the scenes that if this is something an advisor wants to do, and many advisors uh, have chosen to go down this path to offer alternatives on an ongoing basis, is that there's a completely different cadence and operating mm. rhythm on the alternative side than there is on the traditional side. And again, yes. many of our clients have been in the business for multiple decades, so they certainly understand how the, how the, the business works on the traditional side. And given that they're giving advice in many cases to taxable clients, uh, obviously, if they're holding investments 
for for a number of years, uh, you know, taxes are a big consideration. If they like the manager and the client's comfortable, there's a lot of scenarios where they're holding a strategy on the traditional side for many, many, many years, and there's no need to change from where they sit, and that's fine. On the alternative side, if that's if that's kind of how they've grown up in their business, the alternative side is 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 a bit of a stark contrast. So getting their arms around those initial managers is is certainly one thing. But then understanding the process on an ongoing basis, I think, is another where, to to your point, Peter, understanding where these managers fit um, in the the greater kind of ecosystem of of strategies and solutions from an investment standpoint that a firm is offering is critical. And knowing the timing, you know, most of these alternatives that are being offered um, are closed ends, meaning that they're 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 open for a finite amount of time. It could be 12 months, it could be 18 months, it could be a, a, a you know something in between where they're fundraising. And then that's your opportunity, you know, mm-hmm. if you're an advisor to get your clients access to that strategy. And once it's closed, that firm might not be offering a similar strategy for several years. And so if you're building a portfolio, uh, an offering, uh, let's say it's a handful of private equity managers just to, just to pick one, one sleeve, uh, you really have to have the forethought to understand, okay, we're offering these types of managers, uh, you know, a variety, a diverse set of managers that approach the world, you know, with a different viewpoint. But then also, when are these going to be rolling off and how do you replace them? Because if you mm-hmm. always want to offer five managers, let's just say, in a given given area, you've got to find out when they're closing and make sure that the, you have something to backfill so that there's always five uh, or whatever number mm-hmm. the client is interested in in offering, and managing that because, um, and Peter, you've done this a lot, helping clients understand how they operate behind the scenes as far as capital calls mm-hmm. and how to invest. It's it's a very different world if you're not used to it, and it's something that I know you've spent a lot of time doing with yeah. clients. Yeah, it, it, you know, for our clients that have really been in the traditional asset classes, right, the, the liquid market-based asset classes, you know, from equity to fixed income, uh, they may have dipped their toes into uh, hedge funds, you know, 10 years ago, maybe moved into some real estate um, uh, and have inherited, you know, some illiquid alternatives. Um, so when they do go into the illiquid alternative world, um you know, it is a much different world than the traditional public asset classes. Um, Dave, you, you mentioned uh, a couple of things. One, you know, commitments represent almost a quasi liability. Um, they, uh, if you have a benchmark um, and you make commitments to private equity um, or real estate, um, you have some risk. Uh, until that capital is called uh, and deployed. Uh, you have to manage that risk relative to a benchmark. Uh, so uh, that means uh, being in an overweight position in public equity um, and uh, really educating clients on how to think about uh, committed capital that has not been called yet. Um, uh, some, some clients view it as leverage and want to put it in cash. Uh, some advisors have uh, real challenges with um, overweighting equity um, uh, and, and managing that risk, uh, but one of the one of the the 
the challenges that we see is you do, you know, your normal processes, you know, investment reporting. Uh, you have to report an IRR. You cannot really uh, report uh, with a time-weighted rate of return. Uh, the client may not understand that, uh, hey, these private equity funds um, uh, release a valuation three months in arrear, if you're lucky, or a fund of funds, you know, maybe six months. Um, uh, it's a little bit of time shifting that's required. It's almost a time machine, uh, is, is the way we describe it. But when it comes to RIAs and um, our intermediary clients, it's it's really the operational aspect of it. It's it's the it's the people and processes that are essentially under the hood and that support the advisor that are that are largely impacted by um, the the pace and tempo of capital calls and distributions. Um, rebalance and raising money for those capital calls, managing cash, which is always a challenge um, uh, to meet, you know, to to manage, uh, you know, need for income and uh, withdrawals from the portfolio um, and cash drag. Um, if you think about one fund having four capital calls, um, uh, you know, throughout the year, you know, I would argue uh, it may take one person, you know, twenty to thirty minutes to uh, to execute uh, and facilitate and implement and, and get that capital call fulfilled you know through all sorts of different processes calling the client talking to your operational staff moving money around uh, making sure the wires um, you know occur on time uh, so that's you know for one client four times a year I would I would argue that's two hours for one person now add scale to that um, by having more than one fund, Right. Uh, and then multiply that by the number of clients invested in private equity. You know, we have found that, you know, some clients are saying we need to hire one or two people uh, just to handle the operational aspects of this new asset class. So um, it, it really is an impactful uh, change for, um, you know, the select group of our clients that are just starting to make that leap into these liquid alternative asset classes. Yeah, those are great points, Peter, and ones that, uh, as you know, the, the, that tends to be the second or third conversation that we have with a lot of these clients as they're trying to get their arms around what this entails. And uh, there's just two other points I want to make about this about this topic that I think are are germane to, to a lot of the clients that that are considering this, which is the access to alternatives and then um, for fees and and more importantly fee negotiation. So. Um, you probably have heard anyone listening, you know, you've seen the studies. When you look at the performance of alternative managers, uh, there's really a huge dispersion in performance between the top performing managers and really any of their peers. So essentially it, what that what that translates to is how critical it is in the alternative space to get access to the best managers uh, because there is such a performance dispersion. And so that is a huge challenge for a lot of financial intermediaries. Uh, you know, if you're a mid-sized RIA uh, and you don't have the contacts within the within the business, uh, reaching out to a, a manager in the alternative space to get access is very difficult uh, unless you have a track record of, of uh, putting significant client dollars to work with them. That's something that we facilitate for a lot of our clients because we've been doing this for so long at the scale uh, that we operate within. And so that's, a, I think, a key differentiator when, if you're an advisor and you're thinking about offering alternatives is that 
you need to make sure that you have um, a way to access a lot of these managers mm -hmm. through relationships. Obviously, it's something that our firm can do. We're, we're certainly not the only firm that can do that. But the right. point is, it's something to consider is that you want to make sure that you're you're doing it in a way that's thoughtful, um, that's going to have a good out from, outcome for your client. But then also from a business standpoint, you have to think of it a slightly different way, which is what you offer in this space is either going to be a competitive advantage or a competitive disadvantage. If you're able to offer the manager that is available to everyone, including your competition, that's not really a differentiated business business practice offering. So being able to offer something that's different that your competitors can't offer uh, for the most part is something that is is very important and something we would we would tell you to explore as you go down this path. And then last but not least, uh, as it relates to fees, I mentioned this um, earlier in our discussion, is that a big part of what we do in talking to these managers is obviously our research team is 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 vetting them. They're telling us who they think are best in class. And, you know, if you're a, a $200 billion pension plan, you know, investing, you know, 10 or $20 million in a in a, a closed end alternative strategy is is not really a, a significant commitment. However, if you're a, a client that has, let's say, $5 million portfolio, that's that's not going to happen. So a big part of what Peter and I do working closely with our research colleagues is talking to these managers about our advisor solutions intermediary practice and working with them on minimums. And it, it certainly doesn't work 100% of the time, but we do have a very high level of success of talking to managers that say, look, you, we understand your minimum is 10 million. That's not really viable. There's a very small percentage of our advisors that that would be a good solution and, and price point for. And so working with them, and in many cases, you know, that $10 million minimum will come down to 1 million. Or if there's a $5 million minimum, maybe mm -hmm. it comes down to 250K or 500K. And that really is, is a bit of a sweet spot in a lot of ways for many of our clients, because in that, in that that uh, at that price point, an advisor can build a diversified portfolio. Because certainly what you don't want is the client has a budget for a $250,000 allocation, and great, you have one manager that can fulfill that. Well, you, you certainly are not building an alternatives allocation by having one mandate. So we like to try to negotiate, uh, you know, as aggressively as we can with these managers, and they've been very accommodating to us and our clients so that what you can put forward is something that the, the advisors can actually use and deploy with their clients in a favorable way for good outcomes with the client and also from a competitive standpoint it allows them to offer something that you know their competitor down the street probably cannot peter any any additional thoughts you want to share before we we wrap this up for today uh dave i i think we could talk for for hours and uh, i don't think anybody would like that but um <laughs> i i would i would just say you know one of the benefits of uh, working with us uh, in alternatives to kind of close the loop on that topic uh, is, you know, we do have a significant amount of scale. You know, we represent a meaningful source of funds for the private equity industry. Um, you know, our business uh, is very, uh, and our clients are very attracted to the asset management industry. And we, you know, do garner that 
access. We have that special access and that comes with our scale, comes with the, you know, the, the billions of dollars in private equity commitments that we've made, um, uh, you know, on behalf of our clients and um, really the benefits are, are really significant um, uh, to our financial intermediary and ASG clients. And uh, I'm, I'm very happy when we get to be, uh, have a positive impact like that. Yeah, thanks, Peter. As I said, this is our first of many. So we'll be back with additional topics uh, to discuss amongst Peter, myself, and also be looping in uh, folks from our research team and across our organization to provide you topics that we think will be timely and useful to you. So thanks again for joining us and have a good day.